I hope your curiosity is as strong as my sweet tooth because there are a ton of questions to be asking. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. The carnivore diet. It's a new trend slash diet you may have heard about. And like a lot of trends, especially intermittent fasting as, as well as the carnivore diet, a lot of these trends that people are talking about today ask questions about our humanity, who we are as humans, what is the story of humanity and evolution, what are we meant to do? And my guest today, Frank Tufano, has a YouTube channel and he has been on the carnivore diet for five to six years. And he has a lot of interesting things to say about what we are meant to eat. And that's why I'm really excited to have him on the show and answer these questions about humanity. So, Frank, thanks for joining me today. What's going on? How are you guys? Yeah, that's about right. Five and a half, six years carnivore now. Done multiple aspects of it from raw to cooked, organ meats, fat ratios, kind of touched on a little bit of everything. I like to call myself a, a jack of all trades, master of none so to speak. I'm definitely going to ask you more about how you vary the diet. I mean, five and a half years is a really long time. The longest I've been on a diet is 13 months. So, um, but first I want to ask you it in my mind, the question I'm dying to know, uh, more about is what do you think is the story of humanity as far as like what we're meant to eat? In regards to my understanding, and forgive my lack of anthropological background, uh, the main things that played a role in human evolution and development was our ability to procure nutrient-dense animal foods like brain and marrow scavenging from corpses. So my theory is uh, humans were able to obtain larger amounts of meat. And we see that there's a great documentary, I think it's called The Warrior Chimpanzees or something, where these chimpanzees would hunt smaller monkeys and smaller mammals and they would eat the meat and these document uh these document the people filming it were actually offered meat by the monkeys when they were hunting so even if we look at apes now chimpanzees and their hunting habits it's very easy to see how we speculatively would have started and then how we would have moved on to scavenging corpses uh, you know, maybe scaring off lions and animals off of other corpses, stealing meat from predators. There's that theory. There's the theory that our tool usage allowed us to get nutrition that the other animals couldn't. Like we could have cracked open the marrow bones. We could have cracked open the skulls of the animals. Our use of fire allowed us to, you know, go into colder areas, uh, cook meat. And the cooked meat theory is, uh, it's definitely more questionable about what role cooked meat had in evolution. But Certainly in general, we started getting more and more animal tissue that increased our intelligence, our brain development in regards to our body size. And as our tool usage got better and our hunting methods got better, then at a point we were able to just procure so much meat so easily in comparison to other animals. And I think the key thing that differentiates us from other animals is our brain size in comparison to our muscular size and digestive system, whereas like other carnivorous animals require much more brain usage for their incredible, I mean, bears are what, like hundreds to thousands of times stronger than a human in regards to that. Same with lions and tigers, like the, just their pure strength requires much more brain function. So our ability to use tools, procure large amounts of calories without having to physically work for it, so to speak, uh, is what kind of separated us from all of the other animals. Uh, I guess that kind of answers the question. I guess to go into specific, it's very... Yeah, yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. So when I think what you meant to say just now was muscle size, like the for the bear that, that required them to have a lot of muscle gains, makes more energy, right? Yeah. More brain, yeah. more brain function primarily. Oh, it take it. So it means more brain function. So I thought it was... to my understanding, if an animal has a larger, every tissue in the body requires neurons and brain cells to operate it. So if you have a larger, if the animal naturally has larger muscle tissue, if the animal has a bigger digestive system, especially in cows and ruminants, uh, that's why it, it's not necessarily brain size correlated to, I guess it would be brain size correlated to body size somewhat, but it's more about 
how much tissue there is in the body in the muscle as well as the digestive system and how many neurons i believe and don't quote me on this but basically brain size correlated to muscle strength usage as well as digestive system are the differences between us and the other carnivorous animals and and then if you want to start comparing herbivores animals and also i think something to do with one interesting thing to look at might be like dolphins and whales and their their muscle size and what they need in in comparison to to us and lions that's definitely some interesting comparisons to be made uh, about the intelligence of certain animals maybe even elephants so to speak but elephants might be an example of although they have a very large brain size their body size is exponentially higher and their digestive system requires uh more brain cells as well so there's definitely some interesting anecdotes there and things to kind of speculate on that we you know we would need an anthropologist or someone with an actual background in human physiology and uh, anthropology to, to yeah, that's pretty further. interesting yeah and first of all frank i think what's interesting about your content is that you put in the effort to uh, understand anthropology i mean mm -hmm. i think you know being an anthropologist one thing that's very important right i do think we can discover a lot by look by trying to make the effort to look at it ourselves so i think that is one thing that kind of separates you from other carnivore dieters because a lot of people talk solely about um you know uh, the biochemistry and physiology but i think it's really important for us to talk about the the theories as to who we are as human beings so um so these monkeys you're talking about this this uh documentary the warrior chimps they there's also they, a book called the hunting apes that i've read it's a very interesting book about meat and patriarchal society and how uh the male chimpanzees would use meat to secure mates it, and the best hunters were kind of the kings almost so to speak of the group same as we would have speculated the best human hunters would have been kind of the alpha male so to speak and even in tribes like the australian aborigines we saw uh, usually there would be one man who was, they would speak impressively about, maybe he was taller, stronger, better hunter than the others. Uh, that, that seemed to be a big part of human physical prowess. And we could also relate that to, you know, why people are biologically attracted to taller people and a whole bunch of other things. But yeah, the hunting apes, the warrior chimpanzees are just good examples of like modern chimpanzees and apes hunting small amounts of meat. It's like kind of a glimpse into what doing that for hundreds of thousands to millions of years would do to the brain side. So, yeah, what you just brought up is, is fascinating. I mean, if we were vegans, what would there be to be the alpha male about? Like, what would the alpha male show off about? And it's not necessarily about showing off, but being able to secure resources that ensure survival of an entire tribe. If an entire tribe was vegan, what, what on earth would they be? celebrating you know what i mean um, well, i think an interesting anecdote there is uh i guess something that's loosely related is grain-fed beef you know there's a reason that these indigenous groups did not talk about grain-fed ribeyes because they didn't exist you know the intramuscular marbling the unrealistic grain-fed animals uh, that is something a product of modern creation almost as modern grain production modern vegetables modern fruits are a product of modern agriculture. So if we look at what happened when humans started consuming grains in the Neolithic revolution, our brain size went down, our stature decreased. I'm Italian, like Italians are known for being very short, especially in Southern Italy, where the average height is five, 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 six for males. I'm like five, eight, and I'm the tallest male in my whole group of relatives and family. So there's definitely something to be said about loss of stature and height in regards to generations on a grain-based diet. But what's interesting about that is people can live, that has nothing really to do with longevity. Uh, the fat-soluble vitamin content and the animal protein of the diet seems to affect directly how tall the person will grow and how uh, facial development is determined by the nutrition of the mother during pregnancy, prenatal care, nursing. But the nutrition of the person through growth development kind of dictates the height and that has an impact over generations. That's why, I mean, that's the only thing that really explains why different people in different parts of the world have such varying heights. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You're covering a lot of topics here. I want to make a quick note about that. Yeah, yeah, I ask I'm you another question and no, this is great. So I watched your video, humans are carnivores and you, um, you cited some links to people being taller in the past. So I looked that up. So apparently, 
a lot of these plains Indians, I think that refers to people in like the middle of the United States, like Nebraska kind of area. Um, th these people, there was data. Um, the, 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 the Americans at the time, they measured their height and found that these people, most of them were over six foot mm -hmm. and they ate the entire carcass of bison. So yeah. that's a question I want to get to later. Like what on earth do you actually eat? So when you open up an entire bison, what do you yeah. eat? But the we question I want to ask that. you, yeah. yeah, we can yeah. definitely go over that. What I want to ask you right now is, so you talked, so what are the reasons to go for you and, and others, uh, your audience to go carnivore, um, aside from the one you just mentioned, which is vital, which is that grain fed meat is a modern day, uh, modern day uh, phenomenon. The types of produce we find in every single grocery store, the hundreds of thousands in this country is a modern day phenomenon. So you'd probably want to exclude that. Yeah, exactly. So what, but aside sorry, from I didn't answer that question, which was, um, what what would be the it's just those fruits vegetables all those grains everything it's just they just wouldn't be available like even though we consumed grains and vegetables and fruits recently we weren't really able to kind of subsist on a vegan diet until really recently where we had access to all these different fruits from all parts of the world that's why we see all vegans eating avocados all vegans taking beef 12 supplements if you tried vegan even 50 to 65 years ago you probably would have gotten malnourished within months to a year and then would have had to stop doing it. Um, but the reason to go carnivore outside of that, you know, maybe we should avoid certain modern things. And, and hey, there's a big difference between hard red winter wheat, which has 48 chromosomes. And I want, hold on, I want to get the chromosomes right. I think red wheat is 42 chromosomes. Uh, Coruscant wheat is like 28. Spelt, I believe, is 28. And then einkorn wheat, emmer wheat, the original wheat that we used to eat is 14 chromosomes. So there's a big difference between those incorporating modern versions of those foods into this diet and heirloom versions of those foods. I don't necessarily think there's a bad thing to consume wild plants, vegetables, grains, because every indigenous group incorporated uh, anywhere from, I mean, the Eskimos, very small percentage of their calories from these foods to other, like some groups of tribes consumed as much as 30 to 45% of their calories just from grains. Like there were some indigenous Swiss people that ate a large amount of their calories from just rye bread and cheese. But the main reason to incorporate these animal foods into your diet is because of the base nutrient density. These animal foods have the highest amount of vitamins available in their most bioavailable form. What that means is for vitamin A, you know, when pe people can be a little bit misled, I mean, I guess very misled by a lot of modern USDA standards, because you can label a carrot and say carrots have vitamin A in them, but they don't. They have beta carotene and carotene in the body has to be converted to retinoic acid. The conversion rates are anywhere from 28 to one in most vegetables and fruits to about 10 to one in modern man-made stuff like yellow rice, which is just, I mean, that's unrealistic, but the conversion rate of carotene to retinoic acid is small and limited in the body. So the only real way to get an amount of retinoic acid that we would have seen in indigenous groups in these cultures to have optimal physical development would be from animal foods. And the same thing can be said about vitamin K1 and K2, where the conversion rates vary, and especially omega-3 fatty acids. I think omega-3 fatty acids, which we know are important for brain development, I, and are the nutrient that I would personally attribute to our overall growth. I mean, all these fat-soluble vitamins and macronutrients in general contributed to our evolution. But, uh, you know, we see even examples in nature of, I remember there were some, I, I linked the article in that carnivore video you mentioned earlier. Birds were eating, uh, not birds, but deer were eating bird brains out of a net because there's oh, a wow. nutrient that every, almost every animal in nature can utilize. And if, even if you look at how plants synthesize vitamins from the sun, from the soil, plants obtain similar nutrients that we do just in different forms. Uh, and the importance of DHA in animal foods blows everything else out of the water. And some people say you can convert alpha linoleic acid to omega-3, but there have been some cases where they have shown the ability to convert it some degree to EPA, but there has never been a study to my citing that shows that you can consume like flaxseed oil and that it will raise blood levels of DHA, particularly in men. Uh, that's very, very important. And to get the equivalent amount of DHA uh, in like a filet of mackerel, 
you'd have to literally consume like hundreds and hundreds of calories worth of flax oil, not even seeds. If we were just talking about flax, first of all, flax seeds are ridiculous. You have to grind them up in an, in an unrealistic way to even consume them. But even flax seeds themselves, people putting a tablespoon or two of flax seeds, that's nothing. You'd have to literally chug half a cup of oil to get the amount of DHA that's in uh, a fish. And that's on paper if you're even converting it into DHA. And not to mention, it's prob the fat by the time you get it is probably oxidized. Uh, it's just, to me, looking at nutrient content of animal foods, comparing it to nutrient content of plant foods. And there's specific examples of everything. Like we could go into how animal foods have vitamin C and vitamin E in certain tissues. Uh, we could touch on, uh, I mean, D3 is, you, you could usually obtain D3 yeah, from the I, sun, I think minerals too. I think the main reason you just brought up is it seems more natural to you to be on a be on a carnivore diet. And with the flax you just brought up, things getting oxidized, that's an issue of distribution. So to be able to be health healthy on a vegan diet, you have to rely on a lot of distribution and supply chains to provide you with all these plant foods that aren't really available in your environment. So in that sense, it doesn't seem realistic to really, it, it's practical to be on a plant-based diet because of what's available, but it's not natural or realistic. I think that was the main takeaway. Um, is that, did I get that right? Yeah, sure. And I think uh, one interesting thing to mention in regards to that is just the amount of time that humans used to spend procuring food. That's literally all we do. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do in nature. That's what animals do in nature. You know, what do cows do in the field all day? What do lions do all day? You know, they're either hunting or resting and humans are the same way. Uh, when we had hunt, when we were good hunters and procured large amounts of animal foods, that's when, you know, the hunter gatherer tribes and there's a lot of native American and, uh, American Indian culture you can look into in regards to seeing what happens when humans develop excess time. But the Neolithic revolution gave us even more time because we were able to have some people work and procure food while others would do various leisure activities. But in regards to just the grain consumption, even when the Neolithic revolution came, people still spent incredible amounts of time making food. I, I mean, I've personally made naturally fermented sourdough bread. And I think spending five to six hours of your day just preparing food, even for the Native American Indians, wouldn't have been unrealistic. And then I, that still leaves plenty of time in the day to do other activities. But, you know, most of their day, I mean, for examples of things like maybe making pemmican, butchering animals, drying meat uh, for like other gathering fruits and vegetables, you know, humans are literally our job for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years was just to get food. You know, it's interesting how we switched from doing that to nine to five to acquire currency to then buy our food, buy our things. It's, it's interesting that kind of like food and time and hunting prowess and all of those things correlate to kind of your value and what you're worth and just becoming, and it, and the importance of that ties directly in with how healthy your children would have been, with how, you know, how physically healthy you would have been. So, you know, how good you were at your job, whether it was hunting or gathering or whatever, definitely ties in a lot to things we do now. Yeah, that's a really important point. The, the relationship between food and time. Um, pretty much every organism's job is to look for food and being limited, you're going to be limited if you have to spend all day on food. Um, I just want to touch on a quick point you brought up, which is really, really interesting because I had this misconception about the carnivore diet that it's completely anti-vegetable. But I like that you acknowledge that, you know, eating wild plants is probably okay, especially considering that indigenous people, every indigenous tribe for the most part, um, eats a variety of plant foods and they can be prepared um, accordingly. So what? So do you, do you eat any plant foods or are you 100% meat. Yeah, let's talk about this. So the funny thing is people will go on the carnivore diet and they'll drink coffee. And coffee is the epitome of a negative plant food. Coffee is so high and and listen man, I work in restaurants, I I'm Italian. I got nothing against a good espresso or coffee from a $50,000 Italian espresso machine. I got nothing against that. But I mean, there's like espresso is 75 milligrams of caffeine, cup, a cup, few cups of coffee is 300. So there's a big difference between drinking an espresso. But the point is, coffee is so high in phytic acid, in oxalates, in inflammatory factors for a lot of people's digestive systems that I, I tell people like, 
how can you're drinking coffee, but you don't want to eat seaweed. You don't want to eat this. You don't want to eat that. That is the most hypocritical thing possible. Uh, chocolate is another good example of a food that is super high in, in anti-nutrients, phytic acid oxalates, uh, way more. And, and you're like literally flushing what coffee is doing is you're flushing your system with liquid anti-nutrients pretty much. And in, and inflaming your bowels. I don't, I mean, I think people can be perfectly healthy drinking coffee. There's plenty of indigenous groups that did drink various teas, chocolate drinks, and they were in excellent health. There are even groups of people, there are people that drink wine all day and they live to an old age. So obviously it's not necessarily looking at the negative aspects of a food. I think it's more about looking at the positive aspects and the nutrient density of your diet. But for all you carnivores out there that drink coffee or it's just, you guys are driving me crazy. So I so. think so. I think what you're getting at is a lot of plant foods have anti-nutrients. This was new knowledge to me. I, w I wasn't aware of the coffee phytic acid thing. I'll have to look into that. Um, so that's kind of your main point. Plant foods have a lot of anti-nutrients. I think a lot of people are aware of that. But still, it begs the question, you know, you see indigenous people eating all kinds of these foods. Uh, rye bread is a really good one. A variety of ancient grains is, is a really big thing. Um, so do you, so do you eat any plant foods now or are, are you pretty much completely against it instead of coffee? Are you like just drinking lamb's blood? Yeah, no, I, so for about five years, I've been completely carnivore, no plant foods whatsoever. Wow. Maybe occasionally I put some black pepper or some aged balsamic vinegar on my steak. But, uh, outside of that, I can't think of any time I would have put an actual plant-based food. Uh, recently, uh, when I started. I've been doing raw on and off, but when I did a stint of completely raw for like six months, I started trying some, some raw honey and I was just, I mean, I'm terribly allergic. I should have never eaten it, but it depends on whether you consider honey an animal or a plant food. Uh, I don't use it anymore. I've only used it maybe, uh, on total, the amount of days I've ever eaten raw honey is maybe one and a half to two dozen. Uh, and then I experimented with incorporating certain foods like sweet potatoes, blueberries, and that that didn't work out so well. Uh, I mean, I was never able to digest sweet potatoes. Even why did, why, so mainly digestion? Yeah, I mean, but I never was able to digest sweet potatoes, even uh, not on carnivore. Uh, I did try. I don't remember when it was. It must have been at least like it, it was in the very beginning phase of my diet exploration. So it must have been five or six years ago when I tried sourdough bread, naturally fermented sourdough bread, and it digested well, but I just had such brain fog after I ate it, you know, so lethargic. Uh, definitely something I noticed even with a naturally fermented sourdough bread. There's definitely, uh, there's a great, doc, uh, not documentary, but it's like a write-up. It's called Grains, a Double-Edged Sword, and it goes into how grains are such an excellent source of calories for feeding large amounts of people, but it talks about the anti-nutrients and what they do to our bodies. Uh, but to just to answer this, like, have I eaten plant foods now? I have had seaweed for the past few weeks. Uh, the main reason I've been eating seaweed is because uh, I haven't been able to get access to salmon roe, and I'm trying to get a good source of it uh, right now, uh, which is, it's hard to get that type of stuff sometimes. Uh, you you want to buy like, because usually they make it into ikura, which is caviar. So to get it fresh and not salted and then, you know, figure out what I want to do with it myself, it's, it's just a food that's hard to access. So I, instead of using salmon roe, I started getting uh, some seaweed for my iodine and seaweed is just, uh, I, I think out of any animal or plant food, you know, seaweed really ranks up there just in regards to its mineral profile is disgusting. Like if you ever look up seaweed mineral profile, I don't think there's a better food for potassium, magnesium, calcium. And even though seaweed can contain small amounts of oxalates, oxalates don't necessarily completely inhibit mineral absorption. And seaweed also has incredible amounts of iodine. It's just overall such a nutrient-dense food that if you're not getting seafood in your diet, I think seaweed is a suitable replacement as long as you're getting your omega-3s from things like brain tissue, marrow, uh, eggs, and stuff like that. Okay, so... So you're, you've been pretty much anti-plants for not, I don't want to use that word, but so you're a pure carnivore. Um, but that doesn't mean that someone can't be carnivore if they eat some plants. Cause I, uh, you clearly mentioned one of your videos, like 70%, uh, 
meat, if you get 70% of your calories from meat, that's still carnivore. So were your reasons for kind of getting on this diet related to having issues with digesting plant foods? So I guess to answer this whole, these whole questions, you, you need at least, I believe, I would say 65% to 70% calories from animal foods in order to develop physically max potential as a human. Anything past that for energy, whatever, uh, anything in addition to that. What do you mean that, by develop physically? So if we look at like, if you look at skull structure of any of these indigenous groups, they had a certain, there's a certain width and size of their skull. There's a certain brain size. And you said all the Indians were over six foot. So there, there's a slight variance to some being taller than others, but for the most part to reach that maximum growth potential and not become as short as all the five foot six Southern Italians, there definitely needs to be a certain amount of animal foods in the diet throughout, you know, all stages of development. Uh, and then, but once you get past the, you know, obviously the first 20, 22 years of age, and, and you see this in tribes and indigenous groups, they would gather certain nutrient-dense foods to give to the babies, the nursing women, the kids, even in the fat of the land, they said they fed the kidneys to the kids. There's examples of nutrient preference being given to developmental stages of life. And then there's another, I know I'm all over the place and bringing up a lot of things, but there was another uh, documentary, Bushman Hunters in the Kalahari. I believe I put that in my carnivore video too as a link where, you know, they would give the meat and they hunted the meat to like the woman and bring a lot of it back. And there were hunters, you know, they, there was a quote from that documentary, his hair would grow in stronger if he ate more. So there's something very apparent in older hunters and older people and middle-aged men and people that weren't in important developmental stages, where in some cases they would sacrifice their nutrition for other members of the tribe. But then there's other groups of people like the indigenous Aborigines where those strong men got all of the nutrition. So there's definitely variances in how different tribes, you know, uh, distributed their nutrition from animal foods. But it's safe to say that, you know, especially with the, the changes in our facial structure, needing glasses, needing braces, all of these things, you know, it could, it could really be attributed to the change in diet. And there's a bunch of books. There's Weston yeah, Price. Yeah, Weston A. Price clearly yeah. demonstrated that. So I just want to recap for people listening. Fat of the Land is a documentary that Frank just no, mentioned. Sorry. Fat of the Land oh. is a book about oh, okay. an Arctic explorer of Yammer Stephenson. Who, oh, was, yeah, yeah. So he explored the, the diets of the Inuit Eskimos about how they only ate fish, caribou. And there's a lot of really good – if you only read The Fat of the Land, that would pretty much give you everything you need to know about the carnivore diet and how to do it properly. And he did it for a year. He did an experiment for a year in a hospital. That was the experiment. Before that, he was on the meat only diet for years and years and years. Oh, okay. Uh, in in these indigenous with these indigenous peoples, and then he also he wrote a lot about scurvy. And there's some really crazy and interesting stories about how terrible of a disease scurvy is in that book. And then there's also literally half of that book though is about pemmican. And I I honestly I did not read that half of the book because I was like. Whoa, this is crazy. And pemmican being rendered fat, dried meat, and sometimes they would mix berries in was literally all what the new explorers ate to the world. They would buy this from the Native Americans. And it was a Civil War ration. Pemmican was pretty much the preserved food that we used that was able to sustain us and not give us scurvy. Uh, people that ate pemmican did not get scurvy, but people that ate potted, salted meats and preserved foods and uh, breads and porridges, they did get scurvy. Uh, that's just a really interesting book to read. Uh, there's a documentary, Bushman Hunters in the Kalahari. Uh, what else did I mention? Uh, oh, so, right yeah, there. Bushman of the Kalahari. Um, and you mentioned some, well, we'll we'll write them down, but I have them all written the down. Weston Price one, too, yeah. Yeah, Weston A. Yeah. Price. Grains are a double-edged sword. Yeah, I mean, pemmican sounds much better than um, uh, Cliff Bars today with soy protein. <laughs> um so, okay, so I think my question was... Sorry, I hate to interrupt, but on the topic of pemmican, uh, just to understand how difficult it was to make, uh, there's a quote in The Fat of the Land. It took two buffalo to feed a family making pemmican from one buffalo. So it was a very laborious process, uh, took for two sure. buffalo to, to what? Feed, feed the family that was making the pemmican from one buffalo. Oh, okay. So for the period of time it took them to make pemmican from one buffalo, 
they would have consumed two other buffaloes of fresh meat. That was the quote from the oh, and bison. See, uh, bison see, is different than buffalo. Uh, but okay, so so what were your reasons for going on this diet? I mean, this is a pretty big big change. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to be on this diet. So, I mean, what what was your really motivation? Yeah, I came across a YouTube channel and his name was Paul Check, and Paul Check is. Uh, I mean, very, very successful, uh, nutrition, holistic coach. And he directed me to, you know, I mean, I was watching his video on coffee the other day. This guy is just, he's on another level. He really is. But, uh, he, he turned me on to the Weston price stuff. I read that book and then I read Nora Goodgaudis primal body, primal mind. Uh, and her book was really what flicked the switch in my head that, you know, I had no energy from being on a high carbohydrate bodybuilder paleo diet for a while. And Weston Price's book gave me the understanding of this nutrient density. So I was like, maybe I'll have energy on keto. And if animal foods are the most nutrient dense foods, why not only consume animal foods? And I pretty much tried that uh, fairly unsuccessfully for about a year because I wasn't eating enough fat. And eventually when I actually got a fat source and started increasing my fat intake drastically, uh, that was when I started feeling really good and kind of as good as I do now on this diet. So the main reason would be that I wanted to explore what the healthiest diet was. That was the main reason. The secondary reason, I guess, was because I had no energy doing the bodybuilding diet stuff. And outside of that, uh, I mean, that was pretty much, I mean. Yeah, no, that, no, that answers my question. Um, it fixed my so- acne. For sure. That was another big thing. Oh, okay. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, so it fixed your acne. Um, so a lot of people are searching for kind of like a best diet thing. So how, so it's been five years. Um, you started increasing your fat intake. Have you seen fluctuations in like um, your metabolism, your energy, or is it, have you gotten to a point where things are pretty consistent and you, you feel like pretty super awesome? No, man, I could wake up uh, and I, I don't sleep. I've never slept well. I'm actually on my live stream tomorrow. I'm going to show you guys. I had bags under my eyes when I was a baby and when I was five or six years old, terrible dark circles under my eyes. So I've never slept well. And, uh, and even on this diet, I have slept better. But the point is I could wake, I could get up after two hours of terrible sleep and I could get out of bed just fine, full energy and function. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, if I slept more, I might feel way better, but I've always had, dude, I've, I, I work crazy bartending gigs and I've, um, you know, I've gone two or three days without sleeping and I've been fine. Uh, it's, it's, I've, people call me a cyborg pretty much with my energy levels. I've mm-hmm. been called a robot at my jobs. They think I run on batteries and, and I've done like two or, uh, like two week fasts. That's my longest fast. So I like my energy levels are, I would say unparalleled to, uh, I guess any other diet I've ever experienced and, and just seeing other people like it's not comparable. It really isn't. I'll go two or three days without eating and I'll, I'll pop out of bed with more energy than anyone around me. Yeah. It, it kind of makes sense. If you're on a very low zero carb carnivore diet, your body might be you able to fast more effectively and just rely on, on the fat oxidation, um, ketone oxidation. Wow. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. Cause I think a lot of people with low carb fear, low energy, I mean, I do myself, but I've never tried, I mean, I've tried keto for two weeks and I felt pretty horrible, but, um, I, I think with some tweaking, it might, it, things could be possible. So you feel good. Um, so one thing I, you mentioned before, and I want to get this straight, cause this is a huge controversy with Weston A. Price, the idea that, um, okay, animal, certain nutrients in the foods are what create the 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 phenotype, the the facial structure, the bone development, the height, or is it also hard food, um, chewing foods, developing the jaw? I mean, there's no question people are having breathing problems because their faces, our faces are actually getting longer. It's and tied we're, in. We're having uh, recessed yeah. chins, and this actually makes the airway narrower, causing sleep apnea and all kinds of issues. Makes your face le- less. Um, uh, um, less close to the golden ratio, which is kind of like the ratio for beauty. So do you think, do you think it's just the nutrients or do you think also chewing plays a role in creating the wide, um, broad faces and stuff? In, in so the indigenous so it, it's, it's absolutely not chewing, uh, because I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at babies that come out of mothers, there's drastic differences in facial structure and size of even just the width of the jaw and 
several month old babies and and I've seen pictures of like a few month old babies with very very tiny pursed lips and then I've seen pictures of several month old babies with wide developed lips so even in just very young child and toddlers there's drastic examples of facial development but if your body doesn't have the required nutrients and minerals to develop the bones properly it's going to take it from parts that that's just what happens and the dental structure and the face seems to be but what happens is your face doesn't develop properly that causes the improper breathing patterns does that exacerbate the issue and facial structure problems to me it's it's a hard question to answer the, both definitely matter you know lack of nutrition definitely leads to improper facial structure uh, can you fix the facial structure with just proper posture absolutely not i don't think so uh, we know that indigenous groups you know there were polynesians who consumed very soft foods and then there were eskimos who chewed all day and both of them had very similar facial structures and facial development you know there's variances in indigenous diets and and facial structure and development and i mean they don't chew a lot of their food you know eskimos and inuits would just swallow the meat they take a few bites and swallow it if anything we chew more now than we used to especially with how much more food we eat to say to me the whole hard food soft food thing really doesn't so just, yeah no that's that's a fascinating perspective thank you for that but okay so if you're eating and and say you open up the entire bison mm -hmm. i mean you'd have to how like wouldn't there be parts of the animal that you'd really have to chew through uh, so if hypothetically if you did that you would eat the back fat and the marrow first and the brain tissue all of those are super soft and you you eat them like it's like jello pretty much uh, every every part of that if we're talking about the liver if we're talking about the kidneys those are soft too for meat they're they're soft as as soft as uh What's a good example of something? I mean, I wouldn't say they're a super soft food as the marrow or the fat, but they're definitely not a hard food. Uh, definitely not as hard as cereal, for, that's for sure. Definitely not as hard as chewing an apple. Um, and if we're talking about muscle meat, lean muscle meat, humans didn't eat lean muscle meat off the animal. They would eat the fatty parts uh, 100%. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, in the case of like the warrior chimpanzees and monkey i mean there's different degrees of chewing because the eskimos would eat uh, they would chew on leather all day and uh, some eskimos would eat frozen fish so uh, there's various degrees but in regards to just a freshly killed animal there's nothing in that animal that you would actually have to uh, chew a lot there might be a lot of work to crack open the marrow bones and cut the meat up with tools but uh, that's a big reason you know, humans' tool usage require allows us to alleviate using our actual teeth and tearing meat off of haunches. And although sometimes they do that, it's, it, I don't know if you've ever roasted a whole pig, but everything on that pig falls apart. And uh, I, I guess something to tie in here is all indigenous groups did consume both raw and cooked foods. There was no, yeah, I was ask you about there that. was no completely raw indigenous group. And there are, drastic preferences for certain preparations of certain parts of the animal so you know they might have preferred to eat the marrow of the lower leg bone raw but they preferred to boil the upper leg bone uh, they might have preferred the liver of a certain fish raw but they would have preferred the liver of another fish uh, seal boiled maybe same thing with head uh, various tissues of the animal uh, they had different cooking methods for that would be a really interesting um, kind of write-up to see, like just compiling like which indigenous tribes did what. I mean, I think a lot of it is intuitive as well. I mean, you 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 just kind of get the feeling for which foods you'd want to um, boil versus versus cook. Uh, about liver, what do you think about eating like raw beef or pork liver? I mean, they, it's very smelly. Do you, is that does that bother you or? So I've. You know, when I started this diet, I didn't really know about the carnivore diet until about two years ago, and I was inadvertently following it. Oh, wow. And I was always eating raw liver and raw salmon roe and those foods, cod liver oil, when I started this diet. But 
the main thing to take away here is, uh, especially in the fat and the organs of the animal, the quality of the animal is what determines how they will taste. I have some baby lamb liver downstairs on a plate right now that has no taste to it. If you try to smell this liver, you could not smell it. It is so mild and so fresh. I, I killed a lamb. Uh, well, I don't want to get too, you know. You uh, hunted a lamb, yeah. Um, harvested hunted a lamb. Harvested. harvested. And when, when the meat is that fresh off of a freshly killed animal, it has no smell or taste to it. I literally can. The only thing on my palate was like a sense of mineral. That was it. I was eating uh, just how young the animal was, the lack of fat on the animal. Everything on that animal pretty much tasted like nothing. And then over the course of a few weeks, the flavor of the meat kind of came too. But in freshly killed animals, there's very little flavor on the meat. So that's, people, that's a fascinating point. The liver, the, first of all, the grain-fed beef liver and the grain-fed pork liver you're buying in the store is tastes terrible because the animal is sick and the liver it's gets rough. bitter and astringent. Another part is that liver is a lot older than you think it is. Fresh liver in the store is at least, I would say, three to four weeks old. Maybe, uh, actually, at least, I would bet five to six weeks old, uh, 100%. So keep in mind, meat from the supermarket, meat most people have access to is way older than you think it is. And I have a video on rotten foods and how humans love eating rotten foods. And that's uh, that probably played a big role in the foods we would have eaten too. And, uh, you know, indigenous groups all, to my understanding ate rotten foods and in various degrees from, I mean, it could have been cheese. It could have been literally, uh, there's very traditional fermented foods. There's kiviak, which is where they take the Eskimos, the Inuits, they took birds, they stuffed the birds into a seal skin and they buried it for a year. There's the muktuk, which is some, uh, the whale fat and blubber that's fermented. There's, uh, I mean, indigenous Inuits used to let the fish rot and they would eat the rotten fish a year later. Uh, almost every indigenous group eats uh, some and even modern versions of the cheese with maggots in it. There's plenty of modern versions of fermented foods that people eat every day from ham and cheese to yogurt to sourdough bread. Fermented and rotten foods have always had a very high level. And I think almost every animal in nature eats rotten foods. You know, cows ferment grass in their stomach. So although they're eating fresh grass, it technically rots and sheep, uh, sheep chew the cud. So they spit the, you know, the, the rotten grass back up into their mouth and they chew it. Uh, rotten foods uh, definitely tie in to. Uh, yeah, I th I think I read somewhere that the cer certain hunter gatherers in Africa, after they killed the harvested animals, ruminants, they would eat the uh, fermented grass in their actual intestines. Um, that that was fascinating. That's you know I think everyone watching this right now needs to go read Nutrition and Physical Degeneration because yeah. um, what you're bringing up here you've brought up some ideas that I I've never even thought of but when we we're not connected to our food that's one thing that's really uh, strikingly obvious and when you connect your food by harvesting an animal or witnessing an animal slaughtering I think you get a better understanding of like what the difference is between real fresh food and stuff in a grocery store. And I think a separate um, episode, a separate video, a separate book needs to be written on how one can uh, find resources to get more of these foods or strategies for finding these foods in today's environment. Because I think that's a big barrier for people on the carnivore diet. I mean, do you have any quick thoughts on um, you know, what you've learned about trying to acquire some of these foods? Yeah, I mean, that's a big topic. I made a video, a brief video on food sourcing. And by brief, I mean like 10 minutes. And to me, that was considered brief. But yeah, that's uh, a big it's really interesting because uh, I there's a local supermarket literally down the street from me. And I went in and I asked them, uh, do you guys trim a lot of lamb? And they literally gave me like 10 pounds of Australian lamb fat the next day for like 10 bucks. And wow. the main food and the main source of nutrition that's hard on this diet for people to procure is the fat because raw dairy, raw butter, raw cream, and pastured eggs tend to be the best source of fat people have access to, the easiest at least, uh, to get. But I have a dairy and egg allergy, so I can't eat that. So I can only eat uh, fat of an animal. And the fat has to be grass-fed to be edible, pretty much. You can't consume. Uh, I mean, if you rendered grain-fed fat, that's. I think that's why Michaela Peterson had diarrhea for six weeks. 
because she was eating a lot of grain-fed fat, high omega-6 fats, very hard for your body to digest. But that's just an interesting thing. Like I, I've been sourcing a lot of different fats for all these years from various uh, farms online and getting stuff shipped frozen. And then I just went to a bunch of local butchers and asked them if they had fat trim they could sell me. Uh, in regards to my muscle meat, uh, I mean, what's weird is that supermarket that I go to, they'll sell lamb shoulder chops for $4 a pound. You know, they will have, you know, sometimes local supermarkets, certain chains, Tesco, Aldi's, they'll have really cheap lamb at certain cuts. Uh, before that, I had a, I mean, I'm in New York City, man. I had a couple licenses with meat purveyors and food distributors. So like Baldor's one, I could order, you know, I could get. Uh, Australian, I think Australian ribeye and New York strip are around seven dollars a pound for me. Uh, I realmilk.com is yeah, real milk is a good source for finding raw dairy, but I can't, I can't consume raw dairy and it's expensive as hell. You know, raw milk is at least ten dollars a gallon. Sheep milk is like forty dollars a gallon. It gets a little nutty. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do buy pastured eggs for my family, like six or seven dollars a dozen. Yeah, no, it's a really important conversation. If it, basically, you just have to kind of ask around and and find find sources. Um, yeah, to not go further in depth and to sum it up, uh, Eat Wild is a good resource, but there's a lot of cons to buying whole animals. Farmers and butchers tend to rip you off. Uh, but yeah, it really is about going to your all your local options, having these conversations with fishmongers. Hey, do you guys get salmon roe? Can you buy me sweet fish roe? Do you get it shipped in for other things you make? Uh, go to your local supermarkets, talk to the butchers, see what they have, see what you have access to and have these conversations. You can't just, you know, go into a supermarket, look on the shelf and expect to find everything you need. That's not, that's literally never what I do. Okay. Quick question. Someone brought up, um, we, uh, what's your fat to protein ratio? If you could sum this up. Yeah, quick. this was in fat of the land. It's 80, 80, 20, 80% fat, 20% lean. Uh, I, mine is a little different because I have more lean body mass. So I usually crave more protein, but in an untrained individual, it, that's what it should be around. Okay. Um, two more quick questions. So for what, so anaerobic glycolysis basically is like sprinting energy. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have like, do you work out? And if you do, do you, uh, modify your workouts based on your fat intake or can you basically do the same things like, you know, CrossFit style workouts that typically rely on, you know, glucose. You could do the same thing, but that's dependent more on your sleep and your just you have to like it's weird. Like eat eating meat and fat before a workout gives me more energy than not. Uh you would think that wouldn't matter, but uh say like I've compared having honey before a workout to meat and fat and I found no difference. So there's definitely something to be said about you don't necessarily need carbohydrates for those heavy. I mean, I'm not a, I mean, listen, if you're, if you're like a, I mean, Zach Bitter, the endurance athlete, Sean Baker, uh, they're, they're very high level athletes and I don't believe they consume any carbohydrates at all. And it's one thing, I mean, if we're talking like, like can Michael Phelps follow a carnivore diet, that's a little bit of a silly discussion, but in the context of very high level athletes, it's evident that there is no need for carbohydrates, but there's definitely an increased food volume from both fat and protein for these athletes for building up muscle, uh, energy levels and things like that. Yeah. Cause I've heard a lot of people confirm what I felt was pretty intuitive for me. Cause when I drop my carb intake and, uh, which I don't do these days, but if I do, I noticed I just kind of slow down. I don't have that kind of grr, like adrenaline um, energy yeah. that I need for sprints and like intense anaerobic workouts because that's what I like. Um, so it could be possible because Sean Baker does do these workouts. But um, okay, so my last question is, this is something uh, you brought up earlier about. So the Italians that you said are shorter because they're Sardinia, right? Yeah, and then, uh, I was there's, just well, Sicilian. Yeah, there's a bunch of different. Yes, because I was watching Dr. Khan talk about the blue zones and how um, they eat low, low. Uh, I was screaming at my computer. Fat. <laughs> yeah, but then I then I found a Weston A. Price article that's like, okay, in Sardinia they're high fat. I watched your video, high fat. So the people you say are short, are they eating plant based? The the problem is that you know, and I have a picture of my grandfather. They have enough nutrition to, you know, how like they have big heads and small bodies. Like their heads are supposed to be on bigger bodies. A lot of the time people, yeah, you know, Giada De Laurentiis, the famous cook, uh, you don't know her. No, what's, what's her name? Giada De Laurentiis. She has a big head. 
I'm gonna look her up uh, right now. A lot of people have heads that look like they're too big for their body. Uh, and that's how all those Italians look. They have huge heads and small bodies. So they have enough nutrition to bear children and develop during early childhood, but their diets are not super high in animal foods. So we know that, I don't know if that's the best example, but to, to answer that question, we know <laughs> that you need, we know that you need a certain amount of fat soluble vitamins to develop properly. What affects your stature is the amount of animal protein and nutrients in the diet. So you might have enough fat soluble vitamins to develop your facial structure, but if 50 to 70% of your calories are coming just from grains, you're not going to grow tall. That's just how it is. Uh, and do you think these the people you cite as being five foot six on average, the men in Southern Italy, are? do you think that's kind of the diet they're following? It's a heavily grain-based diet that's lower okay. in fat-soluble vitamins than the Dutch. If you just compare the Dutch and Italians true, true. and see the difference in what they eat, it's very evident that the amount of animal foods correlates directly with their height. All right. Well, it's time to find some uh, seal seal liver, that's for sure. Yeah, right. All right, Frank, thanks so much. This was really informative. Do you have any um, closing thoughts? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of things. I mean, of course, each of these topics, and I know, I'm sorry, guys, I'm all over the place. Like, I know that's just how my brain is. Uh, there's just so many topics to talk about, and you could go in depth on every single one and really elaborate, but it's nice to just kind of throw these things out there and getting people to start researching various things. All right. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, thanks, Frank. This is the story of humanity and what we're meant to eat. So thanks for watching, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.